Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the, and the governor asked him, well, I don't know why. I should have stopped there at verse 11, uh, verse 10, I think. I'm not sure, but I'll read on just in case. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you've said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things are, they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Thus far reading of God's most holy, infallible, and inerrant word, beloved, all flesh is as grass and as beauty as the flower of the field. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. And this is the word that was just read to you by God's help. It will be preached. Please have a seat. We began the Gospel of Matthew, you'll remember, uh, with a call to repentance at the Jordan, and that was John the Baptist. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Every valley will be exalted, every mountain and hill made plain, make way, make smooth the way of the Lord in the desert. It was time for Israel to get serious. It's always time to get serious with God. But when God becomes incarnate, when he comes in the flesh, and he visits his people cleanly and nearly to speak to them, as we heard from Psalm 50, in his humility and in his magnanimity, then it's time for all to awaken and stir ourselves up and to seek him with all our might, because the Lord is near. In fact, though John the Baptist there at the Jordan said, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold, there he is. He is the one that takes away the sin of the world. He is going to be increasing, and I need to be decreasing. And here we see, in this chapter, one who apparently heeded the teaching and the, the commandment of repentance. And it would surely seem as though he saw the glory of the Lamb of God and appeared to have left everything and followed him and confessed him and preached him and cast out demons in his name and did many miracles in his name, and supped with him, and kissed him, and failed him in a mock repentance. Now, Judas, I don't want to say, is a type of Israel's failure, but I do want to say is he is very emblematic of those that would come and have an association with Jesus and be under the influences of the Word and the operations of the Holy Spirit in a common way in the visible community of God, His church. And yet, and yet, the graces of that most gracious Spirit seem only topical and to a watching world, they seem to be true disciples, but inwardly they are, 
they're hypocrites. They're, they're ravening wolves. They, they, they have not repented. There's no love to God. How could this be? How could this be? Now, we need to distinguish here. I, I think the primary, the primary thing to consider in this passage is, first of all, the, 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 the first two verses are very important. They, they are to the point here that the reason that the Jews no longer have self-governance and are now the vassals of Rome is that the Lord has always subjected his people to the discipline of foreign nations when they have failed him in idolatry. And we see here that the scepter had departed Judah, that they were no longer able to enact their own terms of church discipline, but had to rely on the Roman government to administer the execution for Jesus. That's very, very relevant because the Jewish nation as a whole had not repented. This is a teaching about what false repentance looks like and its bitter, bitter end. Loss of liberty, loss of autonomy, a nation given to bondage, and that's what sin does to us. But the rest of it distinguishes true repentance from false repentance. It distinguishes legal repentance, outward, fleshly, a type, a form of godliness, but it does not own the power of godliness. It is not an evangelical repentance. It is not a, a repentance wrought by the gospel. It has nothing at all to do with union in Christ and the resurrection from the dead. And we'll take a look at this, but I want to give you an illustration first of all. I, I, I give you the, the context of what's really happening here in the closing, as we're about to close the Gospel of Matthew. And now is a good time, my friends. Now, before we leave this Gospel of Matthew, is a very good time for us to consider what the ministry of the Lord Jesus has been all along in demanding repentance as God has always re required repentance of his people and reformation of life and faith in him and his Messiah and new obedience so that we can begin by and by to, to live the Christian life even as he's calling us to live it in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? That's the agenda from the beginning to the end. But I want to tell you a story of when I was a, a young man. I was a I was a teenager, and I, one of my duties as a, a, the firstborn <laughs> in a Cuban family was to mow the lawn. That's the least I could do, right, for all, all the good that my parents gave me. And mowing the lawn, uh, I had to disconnect the garden hose from the front uh, spigot. I went into the bushes. We had a, a gardenia bush that was about seven feet tall. And, uh, you know, this can be pretty thick. And as I was fumbling to get to uh, the spigot attached to the, to the wall of the house, I noticed a very pretty snake, very, very pretty, out of the corner of my eye. It was very pretty. It was black, yellow, red. Oh, oh, I said. Now, I seem to remember in the encyclopedias, which I used to study as a kid, because I, I was a geek, that this might be a, a dangerous snake, but let's find out. So I, I, I took... Uh, a wooden stick, and I rustled him from the from the bushes, and he came out, and he was on the, and he was on the grass, and he stood there on the grass, and there was, there was black, there was yellow, there was red. Oh, oh! But is this the venomous coral snake that will undo me if it bites me, or is this just a benign one that's very pretty? I don't, 
So I said, I need to capture the snake. So I went, in, I went inside and I took an empty 10-gallon aquarium and I threw him on top of the, uh, of the snake. He was very complacent with that. And I slid a piece of cardboard underneath and lifted him and very carefully took him in the back, set him on the picnic table with a rock over the cardboard so that I could examine him in detail. Meanwhile, I went inside my dad's study and I took out the encyclopedia, looked up the uh, coral snake, and, and, I, and I had it with me, and I was wanting to see if the colors aligned with the, with the snake, because as the, as the saying goes, red on yellow, red on yellow, red touches yellow, kills a fellow. Red uh, touches black, it's safe for Jack. That's the expression commonly. There's variations on that. Red touches yellow, it kills a fellow. Went back there, but the snake was very, was more clever than all animals of the field. You know that? And he was able to push that cardboard out, even if there was a rock in it. Was, there was a rock, there was a weight on it, and he got out. And I, I never knew whether I was in peril, in peril of life or whether that was just a lot of fun. We can't afford to presume that our repentance is fine. We need to look at the, what the Bible says about true repentance. And it's going to be hard for most of us in the 21st century to do that because most of the Christian churches are not preaching a doctrine of repentance. They're preaching a doctrine of faith and they're quick to announce the benefits of faith in Christ and justification. But that's not the whole gospel. Where, do, where did we ever get the impression that the whole gospel can be reduced to one doctrine, believe in Jesus and be saved, or why is my Bible, how many pages I've got in here? I, 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 before maps, I've got nearly 1,400 pages. Why did God waste my time if that's the gospel? We've got a much truncated gospel today. And it will not save. It will not save. Unless we own the true gospel and find the power of the resurrected life expressed in true faith and the fruit of that turning from sin with, with grief and hatred of that sin and turning to God in new obedience. We've got, to just, we've got to look at that snake and say, is it a friendly or is it a killer? And that's what we're going to do today. God help us. The teaching here is that true repentance, true biblical repentance involves more than just feeling guilt. It involves more than just feeling even strong remorse. It involves more than, than confession of sin. And even more than all of that, plus making reparation for our sin. All of these things Judas had as much as, as anybody. And yet Judas, having all of these, failed God's gospel grace. He failed. He was condemned, even as a disciple of Jesus. True repentance involves more than feeling guilt, strong remorse, confession of sin, making reparation. Judas had as much, yet failed God's gospel his gospel grace as a disciple. I, I need to uh, first uh, back up and explain the political situation, why, why it was that Pilate 
had to come with their shoulders, why the Jews could not simply discipline uh, the Lord Jesus, thinking he was a false prophet, etc. But the scriptures foretold the days of Jesus, surrounding uh, Jesus and his passion. This was all foretold. The, leader, the religious leaders had more than ample scriptures giving testimony of this one, Jesus of Nazareth. The Jews, but, however, had lost their national autonomy, as I said before, the prophecy uh, of Jacob in his dying days, Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter should not depart from Judah until the coming of Shiloh, and to him will be the, the, the peace. All right. Judah will take the lead. It used to be Ephraim. It used to be uh, the other tribes had distinguished uh, themselves in the leadership. The sons of Joseph had tremendous uh, leadership coming out of Egypt. But the Judah began to get prominence. Judah was the seat of the government, and that's why Jerusalem has such prominence in the southern kingdom. However, the scepter had departed simply because, well, as the Holy Spirit gives us a tribute in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, the root was already, the, the axe was already resting on, the, on the, the root of the tree. The threat of God to bring that tree down, the, the, it, was, it was threatening. The people needed repentance. The church, that is to say the people of God of old, had lost their way. Blind leaders leading blind followers. And the power of execution was removed from them because they did not have the scepter. These days were anticipated by Scripture. The Jews could not enforce the penal sanctions. And so they had to indict Jesus before a Roman court. They had to entreat the favor of the governor. Now this was very humbling to a proud uh, Pharisee. After all, he was the chosen of God. These are the chosen people of God. What are they doing as a vassal state? Well, they're learning subjugation until they learn some wisdom and repent. Until they learn to fear God and obey him. Until they learn that they are debtors to God for mercy. Because the covenant of grace was everywhere informed in the Old Testament. The covenant of grace was everywhere being administered in a form of a, of a, more, of a more legal uh, administration, the forms of ordinances and all that but not wholly legal. So people could rejoice in the mercy of God and the faithfulness of God and His, and his forgiveness and his, the covering of sin, and they were truly saved by faith in the promised seed. But today we lose that. Many, many theologies are out there make such a, a great distinction between the Old and the New Covenants, or the Old and the New Testaments, rather. Uh, they don't understand but they, they needed repentance. And when God subjects us to humiliation, public humiliation, especially before non-believers, he's, he's not doing this out of hatred of us. He's doing this that we might wake up to our own folly. And, and he is now chastening us that we might come to our senses and turn. But my, my friends, here, here's, here's the thing. The scepter is in the Romans' hand because Jewish people, now being uh, the apostate people, the, the people that have fallen from grace, the Lord has already delivered his woes in the chapter 23 of Matthew. This is chapter 27. 
he's as much spoken of the judgment of the nation and its leaders, but apostate nation, the apostate people are typically, typically more dangerous, they are typically more blind, they are typically more corrupt than even pagans. And I'll just say this just to prove it. Antichrist is worse than any pagan opponent of Jehovah ever because he's fighting against the greater light of Scripture, the greater light, which is Christ. Antichrist will bring destruction to the world because he's antichrist. And apostates are typically more corrupt than pagans. And this is why the scepter now is under the Roman rule. Much safer. The Roman government, as vicious as that was, and as pagan and darkened those minds, they protected the Christian church for many years. Yes, there were persecutions. Yes, there, was, you know, there were many, many corrupt emperors, but they are also just laws, just senate that protected the church from the vicious, vicious treatment of those who hated Christ and his apostles. And what I mean to say by way of application is that post-Christian nations are more dangerous than mere heathens. So be on your guard. Just be careful. An anti-Christian nation is much more vicious than a pagan nation without the gospel. But the scriptures foretold all this concerning Jesus' passion and the nature of his judgment. And we also read that all nations conspired against the Lord and the Lord's anointment. You ought to be very familiar with Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Why, why are the nations in a rage? And the peoples of the earth are devising a vain thing. They, 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 they speak against the Lord and against his anointing, and against his anointed one, saying, let us, let us break his feathers apart, let us cast away his cords from us. Of course, he who sits in the heavens laughs at him. The Lord will have him in derision. He says, as for me, I have appointed, I have set my king upon Zion, my holy hill. All right? The Lord will establish his government. But all nations conspired against Jesus. The Jewish leaders certainly did. And the Rome here, in the form of Pilate, also did. And Rome represents the whole of the world because they, they led the whole world. They governed the whole world. This is, again, foretold by Scripture. We need to understand that this, that this is all being mapped out. Nothing new happening here. Plus, Jesus himself being sold for 30 pieces... The, the scripture here, uh, uh, quoting Jeremiah, I believe this is a gloss. I can explain to you privately. I'm not going to get into uh, glosses, but the, the, the truth of it shines forth just the same. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces as was anticipated in the scriptures of old. It was in Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. You can mark it. And that's quoted here. The Holy Spirit wants us to know that this is nothing new, that all is going to plan that the scriptures foretold key events were surrounding Jesus' passion. This is not a disappointing end to a glorious, glorious teaching about a wonderful man named Jesus, but his ideas just didn't prevail, and oh, well, that's what happens to good people, you know, the good die young, etc. That's not the narrative of the gospel. The potter's field, again, Zechariah 11, verse 13. Now, the potter's field is interesting because that was, that was a, a plot of ground within the Holy Land, that was reserved for, it says here, visitors or sojourners, what does it say? Burial place for strangers. 
That is to say, non, non-Jews. Uh, maybe they're proselytes from, from other places, but they were unclean. They were considered uh, Gentiles. And, uh, of course, we have a holy land. The land is, is, is holy, so what are we going to do with them? We need a place where we can bury the unclean dead. And it better not be in the holy city of Jerusalem. So they had that field. But that field now is purchased with the blood money of Jesus' passion. Now this is, this is I, I, again, the conclusion of this, of this gospel is especially filled with irony. Because the field was dedicated to the Gentiles, and they're the first ones to receive the benefit of Jesus' blood. But of course, at, at the unjust payment of silver. But God can, t- can turn un- injustice into justice. God can use all things, even injustice, and bring about a just end. And it is, as it were, a resting place, a resting place near the holy city for the Gentiles. The Gentiles have been brought near. Do you see the irony here? But all this is foretold. And so we ought to take confidence that the Lord Jesus, who is the spirit of Jesus, is the spirit of prophecy, was not at all perturbed or surprised, taken aback. This is plan A. With God, there is no plan B. His decree from eternity past is sure. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. We praise God for all of his omnipotence and his sovereignty and the Lord Jesus Christ for his wisdom and understanding the Father's will. The second point of the sermon is that there is an outward form of repentance that falls short of salvation. And this is what, by and large, we see in the nation of Israel, going to the temple, sacrificing many bulls and rams. The blood, the blood was everywhere. The, peace, the, police, the priests were bloodied. There was, there was no lack of, of animal sacrifices and doves and exchanging of money. And there was a, a sort of turning from evil. And even the law, uh, the same law that even would provoke sin in our natures, would outwardly bound our behavior so that it would not be so... The shame of of being caught in sin, breaking the Ten Commandments, would be enough to stop a a lot of very vicious sinners. But there is an outward form of repentance, and this was characteristic of many of the Jews. So much so that they only saw things topically, and not as God sees them in the heart. And when they came to Jordan, these religious leaders, they said, well, that's very good and... That's very good that John is preaching repentance because these vicious prostitutes, these vicious tax collectors, these absolute scoundrels, they need it. But we don't. We don't need to, we don't need to repent. We're holy. We're cleansed. We're fine. There is an outward form of repentance that falls short of the true repentance a legal repentance and not an evangelical repentance. And as with such, there is no remittance of sin because there is no faith. How could, be, how could there be faith when they reject the, the Son of God, the Christ, who is the very emblem, the very, the very stamp, the very transcript of God's holiness in person? How could, they, how could they say they have faith in Jehovah whom they have not seen? and not love the Christ whom they have seen. There's no remittance of sins without faith in Jesus. And that faith will always produce love 
to the Savior. And you'll want to draw close to him and away from the flesh and the world and Satan. And that's called repentance, that turning. Judas then elicited some marks of true repentance. Now, I want you to understand, because look, I was brought up as Roman Catholic. And our family was a pious Roman Catholic family. I was, I was at church every first Friday of every month. I went to confession, so did the rest of our family. My grandmothers were brought up in a convent. They had hours. They prayed the rosary. They believed in all the sacraments. There was repentance. Okay? But Judas elicited some of these marks, and let me go through them. First of all, he here professes by the Holy Spirit's dictation that Jesus was innocent of all charges. <laughs> Are you aware of what he's doing here? In verse 4, Judas says, I've sinned. He says this to the authorities. I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Oh, now, so the prime witness who's delivering Jesus into their hands has recanted. And he's saying, no, I'm backing up. Now I've changed my mind. And the Holy Spirit has given that testimony. Judas elicited some marks. He professed Jesus was innocent. That was more than what the religious leaders were about to do. Ironically, then Judas becomes the star forensic witness to Jesus being the true Lamb of God, clear of the charge of blasphemy. Isn't that remarkable? He, Judas had this by conviction. And he had the moral, the moral capacity to confess it. Furthermore, he confessed sin. And he confessed sin to authority, which is a lot more, which is a lot more, my friends, than what I see in evangelical churches today. This, the scriptures say that we are to confess sin to one another. And what I read in the better literature, we're to confess sin to one another when we're especially caught in a grievous public sin that seems to beset us, that we're caught, we're caught in its tentacles, and it helps confess sin to one another, especially a, a dear brother who can pray for us, a dear sister who understands, and the Lord sees our humility, and he takes that, and he gives grace to the humble, and he, need, and he resists the proud. I, people complain that, oh, no, in Vega, we got a, a legalistic pastor, a legalistic minister. If you'll only let the law do its work and humble you, you won't need me to lift you up. The Lord himself will lift you up, because he's, he's gentle with the humble. The more you are brought down, the more he will bring you up because you're Christian. But he confessed to the, that he had sinned to the priests. And he felt, Judas did, strong convictions of guilt. And he shows deep remorse and distress of mind. When have you taken and been caught in sin and, and been so ashamed and shaken to your core? shaken to your core that you have sinned against the, the, love, the God who loves you and your best friend. When have you taken time to feel your betrayal, your betraying heart, your deceitful, sinful, rebellious heart? Judas elicited all these marks, plus... Guess what? He even made restoration. That's what Zacharias did. 
Zacchaeus did when he when he was up uh, on the sycamore tree. You know, he'd been stealing from people. He was unjust in money money uh, dealings. Jesus said, hey, come down. Zacchaeus, I, I, I need to have supper with you and your family. Oh, well, he was amazed. This is a what? Jesus of Nazareth is interested in me? Yes. He's interested in you, you sinner. Yes. Come on down. I want to I spend some time with you. Wow. He was so amazed. He said, look, I, 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 everybody knows. The, the, the jig is up. Everybody knows that I'm a scum thing, you know. But I'm going to repay fourfold anybody who comes to me. Fourfold restitution. Restitution and a, and, a, and a working against that which we have unworked in God's creation is required morally of everybody, even Christians who are forgiven. But Judas had restoration. He returned 30 pieces of silver. He had that, along with great feelings of remorse and confession. Also, Judas had zeal. Judas didn't waste any time. As soon as he felt that remorse, he, he, he gave back the... He wanted, he knew he had to act quickly. Time was of the essence. Maybe, maybe, maybe he can stop this thing. It was a horrible, horrible, horrible mistake. I've sinned. Judas acted quickly. That's zeal. That's action. Action to your conviction. And he did so in a timely matter. You know, if, again, zeal is a primary component of true repentance. Without zeal, especially in a dangerous sin, a high-handed sin, uh, you have to doubt if this man is really interested in clearing his name before us, his peers and clearing the name of God as well. We must be zealous for the name of God and we must be zealous to clear our own name and to undo the damage we've done to other people. Plus the word in the Greek here is metamalean, not metanoian. Um, and uh, one commentary that I, that I quote here, uh, metamalean means a repentance which the Greeks call metamalea, which is a, which is a kind of a forced uh, repentance, a, a pressured repentance, not a free repentance, not a, a loving and uh, easy, complacent repentance, giving yourself into the hand of God. But this sort of legal, outward Repentance leaves the man altogether brutish. Brutish, says Calvin. He's not, he's not, he's not brought into, he's not converted, he's not, there's, the new man does not appear. The old man who's a brute is still intact. It doesn't mortify that. It doesn't kill that old brute. And yet it has many of the outward forms of true Repentance. It looks like a good, pretty snake. But the venom is still there. Judas neglected critical marks. He neglected some true and very important true marks of repentance. A displeasure of sin. That, 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 that's a sin that he took no pleasure in it. But, but, he, but he took displeasure in some sin, but not all sin. And when you hate sin, you hate it all because it, all of it is hated by God. He did not have fear and reverence for God. He did not wait upon God. He did not follow his knees and say, Behold, your servant do unto you as, you as you please, Lord, but I am guilty. And uh, as a sinner, you know your debt, and you wait on the Lord for his word of forgiveness. You wait on the Lord for peace of conscience. You wait on the Lord. You don't just assume that everything's right. 
You wait on the Lord. You wait on the Lord and you wait for him to turn you. And you wait for him to show you zeal. And you wait for him to lead you into new righteousness, doing the opposite of what you were doing. What was Judas doing? All along he was stealing from the purse. He was a thief. All along he loved money. You can't love God and mammon. There was no love. There was no new love of, for or desire even for righteousness. There was despair. There was grief. But grief doesn't sanctify. Love sanctifies. The Spirit of God sanctifies. All right? So Judas lacked love. He lacked the desire for righteousness. And certainly there was no new obedience. Now he decided that the new walk, he didn't even contemplate it. He contemplated never walking again. That's despair. That's unbelief. And without faith, no one can please God. And the worst part about it is that Judas, as a disciple, had seen true repentance in, in many people in Israel. Many others had repented and were confessing their sins. And, and, and there were large crowds that followed Jesus, and some were very sincere in it. So Judas had no excuse. He was well-practiced in the teaching and in the laboratory of experience, being a disciple of Jesus. The priests showed in receiving the, the money. It's typical of uh, folks that don't know true repentance or true religion. They, these priests showed a sanctimonious handling of the 30 pieces of silver, very, very holy. They, they showed complete duplicity. They said, oh, no, this is, this is blood money. Oh, no, this, this money is tainted. It's not proper for the temple. The whole accident is on outward religion. That temple's coming down. Jesus already prophesied it. The whole economy of the Old Testament, which is shadowy, is going down. And these guys are still playing with, with, with the toys and the shadows. Oh, no, no, this money, oh, it's bad. Never mind that the blood is, is sacred. The blood of Jesus spilled is sacred. They don't know that. But they know that the money's tainted because it was, it was received unethically. How close can we get to the truth and miss it by a mile? But that is what happens with when people come under the influences of the Word of God, but do not close with the gospel grace and are not changed, are not converted. And they even use it for a Gentile burial ground, <laughs> fulfilling scripture. And they don't see it because they don't know the Bible. They're blind. They don't see the Bible. So they, didn't they do not interpret the, 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 the life, the world about them by the lens of the Bible. They're clueless. Now, true repentance is impossible without the supernatural, powerful grace of the Holy Spirit. He brings light, he brings power, he brings resurrection. It is impossible for flesh and blood to inherit the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. And until you receive the Holy Spirit, you are not born again. You are not going to convert. And conversion involves two elements, faith and repentance. That's conversion. That word is hardly ever said anymore. Because people are afraid to say repentance because it has some, some regard to law. Of course it does, because you've got to know what sin is. 
and turn from it to God to be truly repentant. You must have law and gospel going together. Very few churches teach it that way. That, that amounts for the great confusion that we have in the Christian world today and the great weakness that we have in the world today and the reason that we are going to lose our autonomy and have some foreign boots on our head if we don't repent. The Lord threatens discipline. We can speak about that later. And so if you're trusting in yourself, you know, there's always a time, okay, I understand. Thank you for the message. I'll consider it. I, I, I will remember. I'll, 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 I'll remember to repent just before I die. You don't have any idea. You haven't got the idea yet. You can't repent until the Lord remits your sins and turns you. And if you mock him at his free gift today, there's no telling what he might do when you cry out to him. Be careful. Are you trusting in yourself for the strength to repent? And have you repented? Are you repenting? And so, my friends, if you have, this is God's gift to you. The remittance of sins is, is great. It's wonderful. We, we, we got it. But also, repentance is great because you hate sin and you don't want, you don't want any more of that. And if he's delivering you from that, then hallelujah. That's good. Repentance is an evangelical grace. Praise God. Why? Third point of the sermon. Because sin brings only misery. And ultimately it brings death. What did Jesus think that what did Judas think that the 30 pieces would bring him? Happiness? Autonomy? Is he gonna buy a what? A house uh, on the shore? What's he gonna do with these 30 pieces of silver? It wasn't worth the pain of conscience. Better a meal of vegetables and peace with it than feasting and strife. And your conscience knows you've done wrong and you're having strife all the rest of your days. You're not going to have peace until you repent. You're certainly not going to have any joy or happiness, not true happiness. And you'll be running from place to place trying to find entertainment in churches, trying to be distracted by bombastic mu music and ministers that will teach you the prosperity of this and the, the blessing of God that and this benefit and all that. They're not telling you the benefit of repentance nor how to attain it. Unrighteous gain, of course, never satisfies. Nothing unrighteous will ever satisfy your soul simply because God is against you in it and he will not bless. Right, buy your vacation home. Go ahead. Buy, buy, buy yourself a, a new car, whatever, with unjust wages. The money is cursed. You're not blessed. The Lord will not have you happy with that. My friends, you cannot serve God and them. And Judas tried. He heard, he heard that sermon. We've all heard it. Are you convinced then that sin is the greatest evil? And you, see how, you see how sin un, undid the Jewish nation. You see how sin undid Judas. Sin is the greatest evil. And you think, well, you know, we lie to one another. We don't speak the truth of one another. But lying is worse than shame. I'd rather be shamed than get away with a lie. As long as I get away with a lie, I can get away with non-repenting. I'd rather be caught in a lie and brought to shame. Correcting sin in the church by a friend, by a kind fellow Christian sitting next to you, that's more important than keeping a sickly peace or a false unity in the church. Sin will be the undoing of a soul 
of a family, of a church, of a nation, of a world. God simply doesn't just forgive sins. We should know this, that there are very sad consequences because sin brings misery and at the end it brings death. A final point here is that sinning against great privilege and great light, it greatly provokes God. You've got to understand this. It's not just you and your conscience. Judas had the greatest privilege in the world as, as Jesus' disciple. He went to the best seminary in the world. Better than Cambridge, better than the best seminary in Scotland in 1820, which is where I'd like to be if I had my choice of where to, where to have lived and where to have studied. Judas had more of God's truth than nations, than, than all of the wise men of the East. And so Judas is more culpable. There are degrees of sin, and this, his was very, very heinous. Judas was then... Under the benefit of that gospel ministry, under the, the purest, purest expression of God's truth, not benefited. Christianity is not an outcome-based religion. The same truth that edifies will harden the unbeliever. The same truth that beautifies and adorns and prepare us for heaven, will prepare for greater sin, greater apostasy, and hell, unless it is repented of. Consider Lot's wife. She had many privileges. And at the end, she looked back, longing for the world. What about Pharaoh? Huge demonstration of God. God, the Lord, the Lord, he's God, Jehovah God. He's sovereign. And I'm a puny thing... I'm, I'm a puny dust. What about King Saul? The same way. Many privileges. Only hardened. Just because we have the gospel shining brightly in this church or in any church does not guarantee that people are going forth in holiness. They must take responsibility for personal faith and repentance unto new obedience. My friends, none fall so deep into the pit as those who fall backwards. And that's John Bunyan. Clear knowledge of the truth in the head, but with no continued love of sin, or no continued, but, but with continued love of sin, you know, you, know, you know what you should do, but you love your sin in the heart. These go a long way towards the sin that is unto death. It makes for misery in conscience, but it also leads you very much against the sin unto death, the sin against the Holy Spirit. Judas' apostasy and death was violent, and death is irreme irremediable. But the wages of sin is death, both physical and everlasting. This is here by the Holy Spirit at the very close of the gospel to let us know that really nothing has changed that God is still God and the grace is still grace, but you can fail the grace of God. Or you can avail of it and triumph and be victorious in Christ and yield all the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And the church can be a vineyard and not a wilderness. And the church can, be, can shine forth in liberty and not subjugation. And the church can be a royal priesthood, not a shameful, denuded priesthood. 
not a deranged and hypocritical priesthood. The same minister, the same message came to Elizabeth, Mary, Zacharias, Peter, James, John, Judas. Same message, same minister, and yet dramatically opposite results. What, does the gospel not work? Shall we swap out Jesus as a minister? Let's do that. You want to do that? Let's swap him out. He didn't, get, he, didn't, he didn't get it done. The church didn't grow. The church didn't grow. Not much. No, the word of God divides. Matthew 3, Jesus threshes the grain, and this is what's going on. Jesus, the word of God is making a distinction. And that's how he's building the tabernacle, the tabernacle of David, which is fallen. He's building it on the, on the threshing floor, and he will separate the true, the grain, the keepable, the useful from the useless chaff. Every sermon is an occasion to affirm your faith or to have you question whether you really are earnest with God. There's a warning to the hypocrites, and you can reread Psalm 50 to that effect. Every call to worship is a trial. Every Sunday is a trial. Will we give our heart to the Lord completely on His day, or will we abscond that day to ourselves in our own pleasures, doing our own will? Conclusion that true repentance involves more than feeling guilt. True repentance involves more than just feeling great remorse or confession of sin, even of making reparation. True confession, true repentance is evangelical and not just legal. And uh, Judas had as much in all of these features, but he failed God's gospel grace. He failed evangelical grace as a disciple of Jesus. My friends, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Pay close attention to what is written. Don't add, don't subtract. Pray that the Lord send his light and his truth and the Holy Spirit that you might understand, not just the essentials, but all of the whole counsel of God. Whatever is revealed, says God in Deuteronomy 29, that which is revealed is for us and for our children. Revelation can be understood by children according to Deuteronomy 29, 29. That which is revealed is for us and for our children. The secret things belong to God. We're not, that's none of our business. But revelation to the believer is clear. Are you availing of that revelation? Do you, concern, do you consider it dear? Take care then how you hear. Ask God for grace to believe his truth. Obey it all. True repentance. Evangelical, it's glorifying to God and a pleasure for you. He means your happiness. He's not, <laughs> he doesn't mean, it's Satan's lie that you're going to be miserable as a repentant Christian. That's a lie. That's a banded coral snake. He's got venom. He's got you. He, you, you you've been fooled. He, you're dead. A true child of God can never ultimately completely fall away. That's not what we're saying. Even though it sounds like we're saying, but it, because it's so rarely preached this way today. But this is the apostolic preaching. You can't fall away if you have, if you have the, in union with Christ and bonds of peace. But Judas, Judas didn't, didn't break the bonds of, of God's love in Christ. He, he, Judas never had it. 
But even though you cannot fall away, the, Peter says in First in Second Peter one, you must make your calling and and uh, an election sure. But then you do that by the thing he recommends: add your faith virtue to virtue, then knowledge, etc. Brotherly kindness. Be grateful then for every grain of truth that you learn. You store it up in your heart affectionately. Have a have drawers in your heart. Store them up, memorize them, draw them out in your downtime. Draw them out, meditate on those on these good chunks of gold, more precious than golden apples on a silver tray, says the Proverbs. Meditate on the goodness of God to you, and especially as they come to you through Jesus, who's loved you, and he's given his life for you, that that blood might avail to your lot in heaven and not just to a, a lot in the potter's field. That blood is holy and is your redemption price. And it will have you purchase, it has purchased a lot for you and in the everlasting city of our God. It's reserved for you in his blood. That's your field if you're a child of God. And so you need to come into your inheritance by, by believing in, in Jesus and resting him for all righteousness and for wisdom and sanctification, that is to say turning from, from sin, and new obedience. Jesus is your all in all, and he will do it. Now take comfort then also if he has restored you from a fall. Take comfort because that, was, that took grace, that took power, that took resurrection strength. And if you have recovered from sin, it's because God loves you and he's with you, and he will direct you, and the righteous man falls seven times. That is completely. Huh. Sometimes, the, sometimes our Christian is indistinguishable from a pagan. And yet the Lord will restore him when he falls. And he begins and he walks anew with his God. The wicked are not so, but they fall headlong into the abyss. They, took, they take one fall and there they lie. You are not under the dominion of law. You are not under the dominion of the tyranny of Satan and, and the, the poor elements of this world. You have died to this world in Christ. You have been raised incorruptible. You are a child of grace. Now you walk in the light as he's in the light. He's faithful and just. Even as you're walking in the light, he's ridding you. He's cleansing you from sin. But if you say, well, I have no sin, the truth is not in you. All right? Those are the markers. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Give him all the glory for delivering you and from turning you from your idolatrous heart, which is very clever to confuse false religion, legal obedience, Legal repentance from true love, true gospel repentance, and true worship. Worship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the great redemption in Christ. That is the word of God. Believe it. And to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. And Lord, now as you have laid your word in our heart, we pray that it would remain. And that we would take heed to hear your voice because you have spoken and to love your voice because you are God and you are our God and we love you for what you are. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's have an offering, please.
is only yours by right. You are the source of all things. But Lord, we would add to your gifts our love and our hearts. We consecrate ourselves to you as your servants in sincerity. We pray that you would bless the giver and bless his gift. And Lord, uh, may we use this money to your great name's favor in the sight of all nations. For your gospel is glorious, and you are the glorious God and Savior of all sinners who look to you in Christ. Be blessed, Lord, in Christ. Amen. Let's sing our last psalm, 119W. Uh, it's, it's a little bit complicated. We'll see what we can do here. If not, we'll just sing it every month until we get it. <laughs> 